Passover is now less than four weeks away. And we ought to be preparing for Passover. God indicates that we should prepare for it. False Christianity prepares for their Easter celebrations. Uh, They have something called Carnival or Mardi Gras, where they have a big bash before they go into 40 days of fasting. It's kind of like someone getting married and decides to just have a big blowout party, uh, fornicate, get drunk, do all those things before he gets married because, or she gets married because ladies do those things too. And they think that, well, I, I'm, I'm going to be in bondage the rest of my life, so I've got to have fun one last time. A rather foolish concept when you think about it. And certainly not something that we as God's people should do. And I just mention that because sometimes younger people get caught up in the world and they want to do those things. There's nothing wrong with being with your friends the night before, but godly behavior should be there. It shouldn't be something that is a big bash because this is one last fling before you get married. It's a contradiction of ideas, and certainly it's a contradiction of God's way of life. But the world has this big bash, Fat Tuesday as it's called, Mardi Gras. That's what it means, Fat Tuesday. And they all uh, disguise themselves and do things that they wouldn't do perhaps any other time of year except in that time when there's everybody else is doing it and and they get caught up in that. And then they go into 40 days of fasting. Now, fasting to them doesn't mean without going without food or water. It means, as I remember from growing up in school, some of my friends, one would give up bubble gum for 40 <laughs> days. Or older people, they'll give up coffee. And so in Canada, they have a very interesting thing that happens about during this time of year. Uh, if you were to go to Canada right now, a lot of people would be going to Tim Hortons, which is a huge institution in itself. It's a coffee shop. It's a, it's a poor man's Starbucks, you might say. And it's coffee and donuts, and they have some sandwiches and everything. But at this time of year, it is roll up the rim to win. And so the coffee cup, you actually roll up the rim of it on a certain place, and you win a cup of coffee or a cookie or a bicycle or a car. And so everybody does that. And there are some that think that the reason they do it at this time of year is to keep people coming back because somebody might have given up for Lent coffee or donuts. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the motive behind it. They don't start exactly at the beginning of Lent, but it always happens right during Lent, wherever that time is during the year. So they don't want people to give up coffee for 40 days or donuts for 40 days. They want to keep people coming so they give up something else besides that. The Bible says nothing about either carnival or a 40-day period of fasting leading up to Passover. We do know that Christ fasted 40 days. We know that Moses did. But there's nothing that says we should fast for 40 days, uh, that you and I should, because I think most of us would certainly die if we, if we did. There was a certain supernatural uh, help that was involved there. But we should be preparing for Passover. 
And it, it shouldn't be some sort of a mechanical thing of, well, I just give up this and, and really uh, make some great sacrifice that God will think that I'm really giving up something that I really love. And so therefore, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know what it does for them actually because they come to Easter and, and, and they, but, but somehow it, it buys favor with God. It, it pleases God, they think. But our fasting, if we fast, and I would certainly recommend that we do some fasting between now and then, uh, should be, as the sermonette pointed out, a time of, of examining or counting the cost. And God tells us in Second Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and verses 5 and 6, Second Corinthians 13, 5 and 6, he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. And this is, as was brought out in the sermonette, a continual process of counting the cost and examining ourselves. It is something we do year by year as we lead up the Passover, but day by day as well. We need to be evaluating our way of life and the decisions that we make. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Christ is living in us, unless indeed you are disqualified. So is Jesus Christ living in you? Is he living in me as we go about our daily activities? Or would what we do not describe the character of Christ? What we allow our eyes to see, does that describe the character of Christ? What we put into our mouth in some cases, does that describe the character of Christ? Or does it describe the way of this world? We have to think about those things. Uh, the Bible does admonish us to examine ourselves, as we just read. And he says, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. And Paul is, is very positive. He, he knew that in the congregation there were some problems, but he, he trusted that people would respond to that. And, well, you know, when you, you go into a congregation of the Church of God, you, you see a different atmosphere than you see in the world. At least we, we normally do. I, I grant you there are sometimes congregations that have some difficult problems that they're going through because of any number of factors or reasons where maybe they're not a happy congregation, which is unfortunate because most of our congregations are very happy. When I came in here, everybody's happy, smiling, uh, communicating with one another, fellowshipping, as we say. And that, that's, that's good. And that's the way it should be. There are many aspects of life in which we can, in which we should, in which we must evaluate ourselves or examine ourselves. But in today's sermon, I'm going to challenge each of us who are here to examine ourselves in one particular aspect of life, of our lives, and that's one that Christ warns us about very specifically, and that being of a Laodicean attitude. Laodicean attitude. We, we need to take it seriously because we read that at the very end of the age when everybody ought to be on fire and be involved with doing the work of God and loving one another and uh, really drawing close to God and allowing Christ to live his life in us, we find that it's not that way at the very end. And that's a warning for you and me. Because there, there's something about the conditions of our world that will lead us to a lukewarm attitude. Let's notice it over in Revelation, the third chapter, and we'll read this. 
I know we've had many sermons, sermonettes on the subject. I can remember from early years in the church, going back 40 years uh, and more, 45 years and more, where we had sermonettes or sermons on Laodicea because we always were somewhat frightened by the, the, the fact that we might be Laodicean. But here it says in Revelation 3, verse 14, it says, To the angel or the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, now, notice first of all that it is, he's writing to the church of God. He's writing to a congregation of the church of God. These are not heathens out there. They are, above all else, God's people. And I think that's important because there are those who have an attitude and approach that, well, if you're not with us, wherever that is, uh, then you're Laodicean. And if you're Laodicean, we shouldn't fellowship with you, we shouldn't talk with you because you're worse than the world. And that simply is not so. Can you imagine these seven congregations in Asia Minor? Uh, the, the John is describing this, and so the people in, say, Philadelphia decide that, well, we can't fellowship with that church over there. That'd be like, we can't fellowship with, with Pontefract, or we can't fellowship with Manchester because they're Laodiceans, we're Philadelphians. So, you know, maybe we are Philadelphian here, and maybe they're a bit lukewarm up there, but we can't fellowship with them because they're, they're something awful and terrible. Well, I, I think all of us can see that that would be rather foolish. But there are those who, who think that way. And so he says here, uh, to the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things says the Amen. The one who says the Amen, or so be it. The faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God. And we see here as Christ introduces himself to each of the different groups that how he introduces himself is making a statement to that particular group. Uh, for example, if we go back um, to the uh, second chapter and verse 8, he says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who is dead and came to life. So he introduces himself as who is dead and came to life. And obviously Christ is the one that is, is uh, giving this message. So he introduces that aspect of his life, that he died and he was resurrected. Now why does he do that in talking to Smyrna? Well, he says here, and verse 10, do not fear any of these things which uh, you will be about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten, uh, ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So here were people who were going to, in some cases, die. That ten days of tribulation was a time of Diocletian's uh, persecution upon the church, but especially upon those in Asia Minor, which would have included all of these congregations, by the way. But that, it, it was a time, it was 303 to 313 A.D. And that was a time of great persecution on the church. And there were many people who were put to death. And so Christ introduces himself to the, uh, the, the, this particular group, this, um, um, I got the wrong page here. Uh, Smyrna, a group that they would, uh, some of them would die, but don't worry because I was dead and I came back to life. So 
in each case, he he's making a statement here. And so when we read Laodicea, he says, these things says the amen, that the so be it. The one that's not going to argue, but just going to do it. I'm reminded of how people think about tithing. I, I remember after uh, the, the breakup of the worldwide church, how there were people on these internet sites and they would say, well, I, I believe that tithing is a good principle, but it's not a law of God. Uh, really, not a law of God. Uh, God says, if you don't, it's, it's stealing. Uh, you know, you've robbed me. But you had these, these arguments that go back and forth. It was like a soap opera. You could leave one of these websites for six months and come back and it was the same story. They're arguing over the same things. That's like a, a soap opera. Do we have any soap operas over here? I don't know. They, they do kind of. And, and, and they just go on there during the day and women stay home and, and lay on the couch eating bonbons and watching soap <laughs> operas. Uh, oh, whatever. That's, that's okay. Maybe that's a little exaggeration. Only partly. But anyway, they, they watch these things and, and literally you can go away from for six months and then, you know, uh, Susan or whatever her name might be, Mary or Gertrude, she's having an affair with somebody else this time. Or, or somebody else just killed somebody. It, it, it's, it's all the same plot. And you have one person that's, that, that's died or killed somebody or had an affair with someone over a, a 10 year period, maybe 20 times. It's, it's, it's the same thing. And people would argue about the same sort of thing on the laws of God. But here it says the amen. So be it. That's the way it is. In other words, God's law is, is, is there and you don't need to argue over it. It says the faithful and true witness. Now that may be a, a hint to us here that the Laodiceans are not a faithful or true witness. But they need to be a faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. It says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's not as though they're, they're totally in the world. Uh, it's not as though they're totally in the church. It's, it's like the person that has one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And I heard a, an excellent speech by a young man who grew up in the church uh, back in... Uh, in Canada, and as he pointed out, that he had to come to realize that he he was keeping. I think I have may have this backward, but he was keeping one foot in the world just in case he found out all this was wrong. And he eventually woke up to realize that he really had one foot in the world and just in case foot in the Church of God. He had it all backward, just the opposite way around. And he, he once he realized that, that's when he began to come to true conversion. But there are people who want to be a part of this world. They haven't properly counted the cost, or maybe they did, but they've forgotten that they counted the cost, as our sermonette was bringing out in Luke, the 14th chapter. And, and so they want to be a part of this world. They, they want to have the, the parties the way that the world has, have a big you know, birthday party as an example. Uh, not just the fact they recognize that somebody's turned another age, but they, they want to have a big party. Invite all their friends over. And the kids, you know, sometimes they start out as a little baby. They don't know what's going on, but it's more about the parents. And then the kid, 15, 16, expects this and doesn't get it, then they have a wrong attitude about it. Uh, we, we want to be a part of the world sometimes. People want to be a part of this world when it comes to the entertainment of this world. 
instead of analyzing what what's out there, the music of this world, uh, some of it's good, some of it's not good, uh, movies and that sort of thing. There are a few, a few good ones out there, but so much is not. Even the books that are read. Uh, sometimes people get caught up in reading these romance novels, and it does affect their minds. It's uh, uh, I've, I've seen it and, and at firsthand. Where you know, I, I remember a, a lady that just loved romance novels, and so when her her husband's uh, friend from the, the army came through and stayed there for a, a few weeks, well, then she ended up in an affair with him because she was always looking for the knight in shining armor to ride her off into the distance, into, into her heavenly place. And uh, it affected her mind. And she had a good husband. She really did. I knew this family very well. But uh, this is the type of thing that sometimes happens with people. So it shows here that uh, this, uh, these people are neither cold nor hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, Christ says. Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The indication is that this is talking to a people who are a little bit more prosperous than perhaps people have been in the past. Now, it could mean in a spiritual sense or a physical sense, but I think that there's a certain physical sense to it as well. Uh, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness be not revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And he says, verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. There's a call to change, to repent, to examine yourself, to know what is lacking and to change. And unless we're making changes in our life, there's a good chance that we're laying us in. We need to be making changes. And I realize that change is something that comes slow and hard. We, we don't just change overnight in most things. Some things we do need to change overnight. But other things we have to analyze a little bit more carefully. Have you ever looked at a uh, a, a movie, say a, a Disney movie, a family movie. Sometimes a family-oriented movie is more deadly than some violent movie, uh, let's say a James Bond movie, uh, where you've got sex and violence and everything. Because, and, and I'm not, I'm not justifying watching James Bond. <laughs> I'm just saying that people would never watch that, but they'll watch something else and then not watch it critically. And there's stuff in it that is subtle. And that's the part that we have to learn as we grow in the faith. It's the subtle things that are going to get us. Like in, in a Disney movie uh, years ago, I, I, haven't, I don't know if I've seen one lately, but did you ever notice that the kids were always smarter than the parents? And, and, and the girls were always leaders over the boys, it seemed like. It, it's a bunch of kids and they're doing something. It seemed like it was always that way. And there's that subtle message that the kids are smarter and the girls are smarter than the boys. A lot of movies, it's the, the jackass formula is what they call it, where the woman is the bright, smart person and the husband is the dumb ox. 
that, that couldn't you know, come out of the rain without his wife being there. Now, there may be some truth in that, but uh, obviously God placed the man in charge for a reason. God knew how he created us, and he expects the man to take the lead in certain things. And yet he gave us a wife to civilize us to some degree, uh, to help us uh, in a lot of ways, and to balance us out. And uh, she's a helpmate in that way. And without both, then we, we kind of get out of whack, don't we? And we do need uh, both uh, sexes to, to keep us on track. Now, many ideas have been floated about this thing of Laodicea. For example, the very name Laodicea has to do, it's a, it's a compound word meaning people and judge. And so some have taken this to mean that the people judge or decide. In other words, that there is a democratic approach here that's, that's being described. And when we came out of the uh, worldwide church, many of us, and the different churches started up, some of them had a democratic approach. And it was easy for us, where we are, where it's not a democratic approach, to say, oh, that must be Laodicea. Now, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. What I do know, when you look at that word or the expression there, it also can mean the people are judgmental. In other words, they judge in a negative way. Not being a Greek scholar, I don't know the answer to it, but I know one thing that I've seen in uh, the last uh, 20, 25 years, there's a lot of judging of others, a lot of judgmentalism. And if it means the people judge or decide it's talking about a democratic approach, well, that's fine, but I would rather look at not being judgmental because that can get me. Uh, maybe I'm not in a church that's democratic in approach, but... What if it has that other connotation? Or what if both are involved? What are both implied there? Or what if I've misread it and I'm looking at others and I'm judging them and I, I, I get caught by that? Uh, but what do we know for sure about Laodicea? What, what do we know absolutely? Well, they're members of the church of God. That's the first thing. We know that they're lukewarm, they're neither cold nor hot, in some way. We may not know exactly the way that they're lukewarm, but we do know that they're lukewarm. They feel rich and increased with goods, in some way. Is that physically, or is it spiritually? I have all this knowledge, I have all this understanding, or we are the right group to be in, and so forth. Is it that way that we're rich in increase of goods? Or is it just that we are so prosperous in our world today, we don't always think of ourselves as prosperous, but compared to people in the rest of the world, we certainly are, and most of the people in the church are in our Western world, and we have a great deal. So in some way, we know that Laodicea is rich and increased with goods. They're also blind to their condition. Laodiceans don't realize that they are Laodiceans. Uh, that does not mean that they can't come to the conclusion that they have, maybe that they don't see their Laodiceans, but they see something in their life that is wrong, that they're not very zealous, that they're not uh, all in, they're, they've got one foot in each, and they can change. 
These are things that if we're examining ourselves, if we are crying out to God for help, we can change. We can come out of that because he does say, repent, repent. The fact is, Laodiceans can, but they've got to understand their condition. And the majority at the very end are not going to understand their condition. So we have, we have that to fight against. They're blind about their true condition. We know that Christ is very displeased with them because he's going to spew them out of his mouth, as it were. And where does he spew them? Right into the great tribulation. They're going to be tested by fire. And it would seem to indicate the, the tribulation. And yet, in spite of all this, in verse 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous, because that's... Uh, that's the problem there somehow, some way. They're not zealous, but they need to be zealous. They need to repent of their lukewarm attitude. And so it says, as many as I love, God loves his people. Christ loves his people. But as a father who sees his son or his daughter doing something that's harmful, he's going to spank, he's going to do something in the case of Laodicea, throw them into the Great Tribulation, a horrendous time into a holocaust, you might say, because he's looking at what comes out of that holocaust. And the fact that some are going to be saved through it and they're going to be a part of his family for all of eternity. He's looking at that, recognizing that some may not make it through. Some may go the wrong way. But he's going to force them to make a choice. And they're going to have to either stand up for the truth at some point in time, make that choice, get one foot out of the world and get both feet in the church and possibly die. But at least he'll know where they stand. Those are things we can know about Laodicea. We often contrast Laodicea with Philadelphia. We've done that as long as I've been in the church. We talk about being Philadelphians. We felt that we were the Philadelphian era when Mr. Armstrong was alive. That's what we always felt. We do believe now, I think that, uh, I know Mr. Meredith has mentioned this, and I, I certainly believe this, we are living in the Laodicean age. That doesn't mean that we are all Laodiceans. It doesn't mean that the living church of God is primarily Laodicean. We, we would like to believe that we are the remnant of Philadelphia and that there are others out there who will make up Laodicea. That may or may not be the case. The story hasn't been fully written yet, has it? And so we need to make sure we don't get cocky and think that, oh, I'm in the right place, so I must be okay. That's not necessarily so. But we've always contrasted Laodicea and Philadelphia because both are in existence at the end of the age. Uh, we find that Philadelphia, for example, in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. We have understood that, and I think correctly so, that it's talking about the time of the tribulation. It doesn't mean that every single person who is of a Philadelphian spirit or attitude or in the Philadelphia era whatever that means exactly, in, in terms of is it, is it a group, a, a, a particular church of God or whatever. It doesn't mean that every one of them 
is going to be spared being martyred because there may be people in Philadelphia that are martyred, just as the apostles were martyred. They weren't lukewarm or anything. I I remember one particular church leader who left the church many, many years ago, and he said that, well, these have nothing to do with eras because, uh, you you know, Laodicea supposedly is, uh, is martyred, goes into the tribulation, and so that can't be because the apostles were not Laodicean, but they were martyred. Well, the, the fact of the matter is that their people are martyred for different reasons. But Laodicea, we see, is thrown into the fire. And that you cannot deny. And so people may be martyred for more than one reason. As a witness, I guess all would be a witness, but some because they are lukewarm. And even if it wasn't talking about eras and just seven congregations that existed at the time John was writing, the fact of the matter is that that one congregation was going to go into some pretty severe tribulation as a result. So we find here that God says in, in verse 10, or Christ does, because you've kept my word, uh, my command to persevere, I, I'm going to keep you from a time of trial that's going to come upon the whole world. Talking about something at the very end of the age. And yet over here in verse 17, uh, or verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy, uh, verse 16, is it going to vomit you out of my mouth? And then uh, you don't know that you're poor, blind, naked. So verse 18, I counsel you to buy, uh, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and so forth. The sense is they're going into tribulation. Both are in existence at the end of the age, as as it certainly seems to indicate. Now, the 12th chapter of Revelation, I think, really clarifies this to a great degree. Uh, I don't have time to go into the whole 12th chapter, but I'll pick it up here in verse 13. It says, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, and I don't think we've seen that as yet. I think there have been those who thought that that happened in the past. Well, when it happens, I think that we'll really have a pretty good idea about it uh, because it says when he's cast back down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Frankly, we haven't been persecuted to a great degree as yet, as yet. We will be as time goes by and things are leading up to that. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. This is talking about the woman. It's talking about, in this case, the New Testament church. It, it begins with Old Testament or Israel. comes down through Christ and how Satan tried to destroy Christ when he was first born. Uh, we read that in the early part. Then we have the 1260 years in the wilderness, the time of of persecution upon God's people in general. And then we have the time at the very end when the dragon is cast back down. And so he persecutes the woman or the church as we understand it. And she is protected for a time of three and a half years in the wilderness someplace. And then in verse 15, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by a flood or the flood. Now, we, we see that when Israel fled Egypt, that Pharaoh, who was a type of, of the devil, chased after them, and they were all drowned in the Red Sea. 
this is kind of reminiscent of that, isn't it? And this flood could be literal water or it could be an army, which sometimes water is referred to peoples that chase after. But Satan is going to try to destroy the woman, the church, when it flees to a place of safety or a place in the wilderness, as it says here. But it says in verse 16, the earth helped the woman and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. God is going to supernaturally intervene in a very dramatic way to protect his people. And so the dragon is enraged with the woman. And what does he do? He goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there is a group of people, whether they be an organized group or just people that were left behind because they didn't have the faith to go, But there are going to be people who are left behind. I hate to say it that way because that sounds like a rapture, left behind series, no. Uh, But they're going to be left behind from fleeing to a place of protection in the wilderness on this earth for a three and a half year period. There are going to be those who, who stay behind and that's who Satan goes after. And so we see Philadelphia and Laodicea, I think very clearly here, that one group of the woman is protected Another part of the woman, the church, because they are the church of God, are going to go into tribulation. He's going to take out his wrath on them because they are not protected at that time. What do we know about Philadelphia? We're talking about Laodicea, but what do we know about Philadelphia? Well, let's go back there to the third chapter once again and just look at it very briefly. Uh, verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. It is interesting that the name Philadelphia does mean brotherly love. Any American knows that Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. Whether that has anything to do with this or not, we can't say absolutely, but we've always felt, I think that rightfully so, the church has felt, that the Philadelphians are going to have brotherly love, in part because they are doing the work of God, preaching the gospel to the world. They are sacrificing themselves to preach the gospel to the world. I I think there's more to it than that. I think that's a part of it, obviously. But if we have brotherly love, we can't just preach the gospel to the world but treat each other like dirt. That doesn't make sense, does it? And sometimes we find people within the church of God, within the living church of God, who have animosity toward someone else, who are not willing to forgive, not willing to forget. But you have people like that. You have men, you've got women. I suppose you've got, I'm sure you have teenagers and kids that are that way. You know what's, what's amazing about little kids? They can fight and they make up so quickly. I remember when I was young and somebody would make me mad, I wanted to be mad and never forgive that person. I was so intent, I'm never going to speak to him again. And I never could. But a funny thing happens, you keep trying to do that and eventually you learn how to do it. And then you get converted and you realize, oh, now I've got to go back to where it was before. I've got to forgive Maybe I'm only the, the only one like that. But 
Uh, nevertheless, I could, I could see that in myself. Now, we have to love one another. We have to apply the, the message from Dr. Winnell is, uh, in this week's bulletin or World Ahead update is talking about love. We have 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And, and love is, is not an emotion. People think of love as kerthump, 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 you know, when it's, I see this girl and I, I look at her and I, I'm all twitter-pated or whatever we want to say. Uh, or, or she's that way and she's all giddy because this fella asked her out or he looked at her or he said hi and he'd never said hi to her before. Well, that's what we think of as love. That's, that's hormones. That's emotion. Now, love can follow uh, emotion. I'm sorry. Emotion can follow love. But when you have a child, you love this child, and he just threw up all over the place, and you've got to clean that up. You clean it up not because, oh, I feel like so. I just want to clean up after this kid. No, you do it because you have to. He can't, and you've got to do it. I often tell the story of how my parents could have committed the perfect crime because we lived in Alaska and we drove down the Alaskan highway when it wasn't much of a highway. It was in the winter of 1951. It had only been built a few years before for the war. We didn't hit paved highway until someplace between Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, uh, Calgary. And I, I, I still remember at age six when we hit paved highway. It was all dirt, but it was all snow-covered, so it didn't really matter. That was the best time to drive. It was snow-covered, ice-covered, and so it was at least smooth. You didn't eat dirt all the way down the road. But I, I can remember there were a lot of mountains to go through and switchback roads and U-turns, as they call them. And uh, I, I, as a kid, I was always getting sick, motion sickness. And my parents would tell me, well, well, let us know when you feel that way. And I, it always come on me so fast, I didn't have a chance to let them know. And, and, and they would say, well, roll down the window. Well, I, again, so we had a, uh, my father had bought a Buick, a uh, brand new Buick before he came down. He was on a military salary, which wasn't much. But I found out many, many years later, he had, he had made enough money playing poker that he was able to buy this brand new Buick to go down the highway. And I, it, I never could understand how we had all that money, but it was, he was a, quite a poker player. Anyway, uh, uh, they, they, he put a mattress on the back seat, and so it was kind of from the front to the back. They had stuff underneath, you know, suitcase and everything, and so my, my sister and I could lay down on the mattress there. Uh, it wouldn't be very good today because there were no seat belts, but anyway, uh, that's what we did. But I was always throwing up at the car, and I thought, you know, if I'd been my parents... They had the perfect crime. They could have thrown me out in the snow. <laughs> the wolves or whatever was out there would come along and eat me, and there'd be no evidence whatsoever. When we got to San Antonio, Texas, which is the other side of the earth nearly, because you're going from Alaska to southern Texas, almost to Mexico. You're actually south of Mexico in some places, some parts of Mexico. And, you know, right to the bottom of Texas... They could have told the people down there, oh, we lost him up there in Alaska. And the people writing to, if they're writing to their friends back in Alaska from San Antonio, they said, oh, well, he died down here. See, it had been a perfect crime. But why didn't they do it? Because I was their kid and they loved me. Just like most parents put up with a lot of tough times. A parent loves his kid. 
And, you know, we have to have that, that kind of love. That's the kind of love we should have for one another. Now, maybe we won't attain quite the same love, but as, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say, we think of mother, mother love as the greatest form of love, but she doesn't love somebody else's kid the same way. She loves a kid because it's hers. And we need to love one another as Christ loved us. And that is being willing to give our lives for one another. So Philadelphia uh, means brotherly love. And we have often, um, we've really always felt that it has something to do with the character of this particular uh, group of people. Says these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Uh, the key of David. There are those who believe that the key of David is the identity of Israel. And on the surface that sounds pretty good. The key of David. Well, David was king. He was kingly line. But is that what the scripture is talking about? The key of David. I remember Dr. Meredith discussing this in the council one time. Never will forget it. Because he brought it out, he says, no, it has to do with government. Well, why would he say that the key of David has to do with government? Well, hold your place here and go back to Isaiah 22, because this is where it is quoted from. It is quoted from Isaiah 22. And if we're going to let the Bible define its terms, then we have to go back there to see how it was used, what the context was, and not just come up with an idea, oh, a key of David, well, that, that, that sounds like the identity of Israel. Well, as Dr. Meredith pointed out, David didn't need to know who Israel was. He already knew. He had no problem with that. There was no key there concerning David. But notice the context of this passage. Uh, he's talking about an individual who, uh, verse 15, he says, uh, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, this Shebna, who is over the house, and say. And what follows here is you see that this Shebna was a man who was in it for himself. Uh, he's hewn out a sepulcher here, a uh, a place for for his future burial and so forth, uh, a big place, so a monument for himself. And he says, indeed, verse 17, the Lord will throw you away violently, almighty man, and will surely seize you. So it shows that God is not pleased with his Shebna, and he is self-willed, and he has a, uh, uh, an, or an attitude about how important he is. And it shows that God is going to remove him from that position. Then in verse 20, it says, It shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now notice he says, my servant Eliakim, whereas in verse 15 he says, this steward to Shebna. In other words, he's not God's, God's servant in that case, but Eliakim is. And he says, uh, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, with Shebna's robe, and strengthen him with your belt. Was that meaning literally his belt, literally his robe, robe or the kind of clothing that indicated who this man was? 
his position. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the responsibility that Shebna had was going to be removed from Shebna and it was going to be given to Eliakim. And then verse 22, and this is where Revelation comes from. It says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shuts, and he shall shut and no one opens. Well, in those days, they had keys like we have at our house where we live. It's not a, it's not a modern key. It's an old-fashioned key, and it can be a little bit bigger in some cases, a little bit clunky, but they could have it, and they would have it over their shoulder. It'd be a great big key. And sometimes it was a symbolic key, and sometimes it was a literal key. But this individual, it showed that he had the authority to open up places and to shut them. He could go into the top secret files, as it were, and uh, do whatever he had to, because he had the authority, the authority of the, the key. And so it says, the key of the house of David, in other words, of David's house of the kingly line, I'm going to give to him, I'm going to lay it on his shoulder. It is his responsibility to open, and no one shall shut, and to shut, and no one will open. He is given that authority. It's talking very clearly here of government. There's really no doubt about it in the original context. And I will fasten him hymns a peg in a secure place, and then he's got... Uh, it shows that he's got his problems too, but nevertheless, God is going to take from Shebna and give to Eliakim the authority that Shebna once had, the governmental responsibility that he once had. So, there's an indication here in Revelation 3 uh, where it speaks of uh, having the key of, of this. Christ is the one that has the key of David here, but again, he introduces himself in a way that is relevant to each era. And it would seem that uh, this era would have, generally speaking, right government. It doesn't mean perfect government. It, it, it shows that this era has the authority that uh, Christ has been given. He says in verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. So Christ is the one who really has the key, and he will open it. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So Christ is the one that has the, the key of David, as it were, and he's going to open up, and no one's going to shut it, and vice versa. And when it speaks of an open door, we could go back to a number of scriptures in the New Testament, which indicate a means of preaching the gospel, a door to, to preach the gospel. Or Paul said, you know... A, an effective door has been opened up to me, or pray for me that you know a door will be opened here. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Well, the only people that are worthy of worship are members of the God family. So there's some understanding of that here. But then in verse 10 it says, But because you have kept my command to persevere. So this group has to be persevering. They, they can't give up. He says, because uh, you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, that we could read a little bit more, but that's primarily what it says here concerning Philadelphia. So we find that Philadelphia... Uh, probably uh, indicates that they have true brotherly love. 
a real genuine concern for one another. And that's what's beautiful when we walk into the congregation here and, and you see that people are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. I see people, you know, hugging one another. Or I see people shaking hands with a warm handshake. Uh, but we're a pretty small group here, aren't we? And I think you could walk into a lot of groups of people that you would find the same thing, not just people here, not just people in our own fellowship, but but I do know this, that when people walk in from the world, where they've been a part of some outside church, and they walk in and they find people friendly, and they find people staying afterward and fellowshipping with one another, that's unusual. Because they're like me when I attended the Protestant church that I attended, which was kind of just a general Protestant church, uh, as soon as the service is over, boom, you're gone. You're out of there. You don't wait around. You don't want to talk to anybody. You came to do your duty for God, and now you're gone. And it's different in the church of God, isn't it? It's different at the feast. We, we have that love for one another. We, we know one another. And that's a beautiful thing. And, and we have to maintain that. We can't allow that to die in any way, shape, or form. We can't begin to, to beat our fellow servant, as it talks about there in Matthew, the, the 25th chapter, I guess it is, where it talks about, you know, uh, my Lord is delayed his coming and they begin to, to beat their fellow servants. We can't, we can't do that. We can't allow ourselves to do that. So there is genuine love. The key of David identifies uh, government. It has to do with government. And Christ says that he is the one that has the key and opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens and so forth. Uh, we see that an open door uh, for preaching the gospel is opened up to this group of people. Now, is your passion to do the work? Is your passion to walk through those doors and to help to maintain those open doors? Is that your passion? That means that sometimes we have to sacrifice, don't we? Sometimes it means uh, driving a little ways to go to one of these Tomorrow's World presentations so that you can be a, a warm body there and you can also greet people and make them feel welcome. Sometimes it means uh, paying tithes and offerings. All those things are involved in it. Sometimes sacrificing a little bit extra, maybe giving up a pint a week so that the work can be benefited. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying that it means that we're willing to sacrifice because those that are against tithing really are saying, I, I, I need it and I want to spend it on myself. Or many, many groups came out of the Worldwide Church of God and they said that, well, the work's been done. That's Armstrong's dead 30 years. But he did the work. It's all done. We just have to get the bride ready. So they take one half of one verse in Revelation, the 19th chapter, and build a whole doctrine around it. And as I said, I think I even said here, I can tell you exactly where the bride of Christ is today, the majority of the bride of Christ. You know, if you, you want to know where's the majority of the bride of Christ? Six feet under the ground. The bride of Christ are God's people down through the ages. And there are far more that are already dead than there are who are alive today. And so if getting the bride of Christ means that you don't, getting the bride of Christ ready means that you don't have to preach the gospel to the world, where would we be? if they took that attitude in the first century or the second century or any of the other centuries down through time. We have a responsibility to do that, and there are those 
who really do not feel that they have a responsibility to do it. And John, the fourth chapter, John 4 and verse 31, Jesus made it very clear that his passion, what got him up in the morning, what kept him going during the day was not beef, bacon, and eggs in the morning. But he says here in verse 31, his disciples came and said, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Verse 33, John 4, 33. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food, that which gives me energy, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, if Jesus Christ is living in us, that's going to be our attitude of mind as well. That's going to be our passion, because that's the way he was then, and Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to have that same, uh, same passion working through us if we're allowing him to live his life in us. Too many today get caught up in trivial matters, and they miss the big picture of what God has called us to do. I've often asked the question, if God is not calling everybody today, why is he calling anyone? I mean, it's, it's obvious God is not calling the whole world. So why is he calling anyone? The very simple answer is to do a work. To do a work and to prepare for the future as kings and priests, but we prepare by, by doing the work. We also prepare by learning to love one another because as kings and priests, we're going to have to love some very carnal people. And not only do we think they're carnal, we're going to be able to know just how carnal they are because we'll be able to read their mind. But we'll also see that sometimes people that we think are terribly carnal also have a side of them that they want to do what's right and they strive to do what's right. They're just weak. We're going to have to have a different attitude than the world has. We're going to have to have a love for the world, and by doing the work of God, that's showing love to the world, but we also must show love toward one another. We see that it's a small group, but they keep God's word faithfully. Those are things we can know about these various groups. Now, there's a book that I have here in my library, and you can probably find it in some old musty uh, bookstore someplace. Uh, in fact, you can, you can actually get it online because sometimes I've wanted to quote out of it and just look it up. And, and there are a lot of books that you can find online you don't even have to pay for. But it's called uh, The Letters to the Seven Churches by Professor uh, W.M. or William Ramsey. And it, it's kind of the definitive book on the letters to the seven churches. It's far from perfect because he he looks at the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 as an afterthought. When John wrote the book of Revelation, he looks at it as John. And here's how John thinks and here's what John did and what have you. But when he got through, he realized that it fit more into the context of Old Testament prophetic writing. And it didn't fit into the context of the New Testament where it was letters written like Paul's letters or James or Peter or John. So it was an afterthought. He threw in these seven letters, letters of these seven churches. Well, that's not uh, the way we understand the Bible. Uh, 
But nevertheless, uh, he, he's written a lot here that is very interesting because what he does after he sets the stage and everything, he takes the seven cities in Asia Minor and he gives the historical context uh, of those cities. And then he takes the letter that was written to them and compares them. For example, in Laodicea, where by ISAB that you, you may see, Laodicea was famous for some kind of a, a, a salve for the eyes where people had problem with their eyes. It was known for that. And there are great similarities between the letter and the actual city itself. In other words, the, the church reflected to a great degree the character of that particular city. And so those are things that are brought out there. And so this was written, by the way, back in 19... What was it? Uh, uh, 14 or something? Uh, let's see. MCM 1906? Yeah, 1906. It goes back quite a ways. And I find it very interesting as we come toward the end of the age when Philadelphia and Laodicea would be recognized more. So I'd like to read some interesting things here about both Philadelphia and Laodicea. And the first one is about Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia. And here's what it, uh, it says about the letter to the, the Philadelphian city. It says, Philadelphia, therefore, was the keeper of the gateway to the plateau, the Phrygian plateau. It was in western Asia Minor, and there was a plateau there that it could go into says, but the door had now been permanently opened before the church, and the work of Philadelphia had been to go through the door and carry the gospel to the cities of the Phrygian land. They had first carried Greek culture or civilization to this area. Now they were carrying the gospel. It is not stated explicitly that Philadelphia used the opportunity that had been given it, but that is clearly implied in the context. The door had been opened for the Philadelphian church by him who does nothing in vain. He did this because the opportunity would be used. But it would be wrong to infer that Philadelphia alone among the seven cities had a door before it. Each of the seven cities stood at the door of a district. In truth, every church had its own opportunity, and all the seven churches had specially favorable opportunities open them, uh, by geographical situation and convenience of communication. But he goes on to say that Philadelphia must have been preeminent among the seven cities as the missionary city. When we look at the, the history of the modern church today, and we realize that when radio, later television, and a lot of other things came along, that there were open doors to the church back in the 20s and 30s, where the, the gospel could go out to the world in a very special way. Doors that were opened up to it. There are doors open today that weren't even open when Mr. Armstrong was alive. For example, the Internet and all the social media that's out there. And there are a lot of things that are opened up to us that, that were not open before. And it says that Philadelphia must have been preeminent among the seven cities as the missionary city. Now, people can call themselves by, you know, Philadelphia or whatever their names are, but that has nothing to do with who they are. They, I mean, a lot of people call themselves Church of God that are not Church of God. 
But it's talking about characteristics here. And if we compare then with today, we, we can learn what we should be doing and what we, uh, what we are doing in some cases. Uh, let's go to page 412. And here we find that the, the city of Philadelphia was small. Population was small. And part of the reason was because they were always in fear of the day of destruction. It says, in times when we can catch a glimpse of its condition, Philadelphia was living amid ceaseless dangers of old from earthquakes, at last from Turkish attack. It was always in dread of the last hour of trial and was always kept from it. Just interesting things when you think about the church uh, today and uh, other aspects of it. Let's notice on page 413. Now we get into Laodicea. And he first talks about the city itself, and then later he'll talk about the church. But here it is in chapter 29. And here is what is labeled for this chapter. It says, Laodicea, the city of compromise. I think that's interesting, the city of compromise. Because this obviously is going to have something to do with how, uh, why it's lukewarm. It's, it compromises, as we shall see on page 415. It says, planted on the better of the two entrances from the west to the Phrygian land. In other words, there was a valley, and Philadelphia was at one end, Laodicea was at the other, and both had access to the Phrygian plateau. And Laodicea had the better access. It was easier for them to go up there, as it were. They had a greater opportunity for preaching the gospel to the Phrygian lands. It says, planted on the better of the two entrances from the west to the Phrygian land, Laodicea might have been expected to be, like Philadelphia, which commanded the other, a missionary city charged at first with the task of spreading Greek civilization and speech in barbarian Phrygia, and afterwards undertaking the duty of spreading Christianity to that country. It had, however, made little progress in Hellenizing Phrygia. It had a great opportunity, but it didn't do it. And notice this statement, why it was that Laodicea had failed and Philadelphia had succeeded in diffusing the Greek tongue in the districts immediately around, around we have no means of judging but such was the case. We don't know why they didn't do it. All we know is that they didn't. Let's notice a little bit more. On page 422, talking about the church at Laodicea. Now, I'm still talking about the, the city itself. Pardon me, I'll get that says, there is no city whose spirit and nature was more difficult to, to describe than Laodicea. There are no extremes and hardly any very strongly marked features. But it is this even balance that lies its particular character. It's even in this balance that lies its particular character. There were the, these were the qualities that contributed to make it essentially the successful trading city the city of bankers and finance, which could adapt itself to the needs and the wishes of others, ever pliable and accommodating, full of the spirit of compromise. 
And he says, it's the only one of the seven cities in which no relation is discernible between the natural features that surround it and its part and place in history. Now let's look at the city, or not the city, but the church, and what is written here about the church. It says, the one respect in which it stands forth preeminent is that it is the adaptable city, able to suit itself to the needs of others because it has no strongly pronounced character of its own. Laodicea must appear to him, to John, leaving Christ out of the picture, undecided, devoid of initiative, pliable, irresolute, and unsatisfactory. The ordinary historian would probably not condemn the spirit of Laodicea so strenuously as St. John did. Again, missing the point who's behind this. In the tendency of the Laodiceans toward a policy of compromise, he would probably see a tendency toward toleration. Do we hear anything about toleration today? We must be more tolerant. You know, we must be loving, but we don't tolerate sin. toleration and allowance, which indicated a certain sound practical sense and showed that the various constituents of the population of Laodicea were well mixed and evenly balanced. He says here, the very uh, very characteristics which made Laodicea a well-ordered, energetic, and pushing center of trade seemed to him, seemed to John, to evince a coldness of nature that was fatal to the highest side of human character, the spirit of self-sacrifice and enthusiasm. Self-sacrifice and enthusiasm. Now, this is very interesting. Um, What happened to Laodicea? Well, Laodicea was a city, but it was also, you might say, a district. And during the persecution of Diocletian in 303 to 313, Uh, It describes uh, a city that was within the district, you might say, maybe like uh, we would say a suburb of of a particular city, a large city. Uh, It it says that there was a a particular problem there. I'll try to read uh, some of this account without going too much. It says, an account which had been given elsewhere of the development of Christianity in Eumenia, a city in the latest Sian circuit where Christian inscriptions are uh, especially numerous, may be quoted here as an illustration of the probable character of the whole district of Laodicea. The evidence proves that Eumenia was to a large extent a Christian city in the third century. And there is considerable probability that Eumenia was the city whose fate is recorded by Eusebius and Lactanius, uh, two excellent authorities, particularly, uh, particularly contemporaries of the event or practically contemporaries of the event. In this city, people and magistrates alike were Christian in the early years of the 4th century. During the last great persecution, A.D. 303-13, the population which threatened, or when threatened, collected at the church, which was in itself a defiance of the imperial orders. They were surrounded by a ring of soldiers, and the usual alternative was offered, compliance or death. In ordinary circumstances, doubtless, some of the some or even many of them would have lacked the boldness to choose death. 
But it lies in human nature that the general spirit of a crowd exercises a powerful influence on the individuals who compose it. And even those who taken singly might have compromised with their conscience and shrunk from a terrible death accepted it when inspired with the courage of the whole body. The entire people was burned with the church, and they died calling upon the God over all. Now, I think that that's interesting because, in a sense, it's saying that they will work with the crowd, but they don't have that individual strength. Remember, what does God tell Philadelphians? They can become pillars in the temple, his temple because they can stand alone, as it were, a pillar of strength. And that's what we have to be. We can't just follow the crowd. Uh, Even if the crowd is God's people, but they're not doing what they should be doing. And many of the Laodiceans at the end will no doubt stand strong at that point, maybe as a crowd, maybe as a group. Maybe they will encourage each other. And you know, we better love those people because what they're going to go through... And hopefully that's not you and me, but we don't know what we have to go through. Whoever those people are, they are, first and foremost, God's people. And many of them will stand strong when the time is right. But they will have to prove themselves under that kind of condition. How can we overcome a legacy and attitude? Well, the Bible is the mind of God. That's something that Dr. Meredith has told us a number of times in the council and elsewhere. The Bible is the mind of God. It expresses God's attitude. In John 6, verses 54 to 58, uh, we're told, as Dr. Meredith continually reminds us, feed on Jesus Christ. We must feed on Jesus Christ. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, etc. We must feed on Jesus Christ. Now, God is love, and Jesus is love. And Jesus did the work of God, which was the will of his Father. In John 15, John 15, in verse 7, let's notice that, John 15, verse 7. It says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 7, okay, uh, 7 and 8. So, uh, we're, we're going to be Christ's disciples if we abide in Him, or and He abides in us. His words must abide in us. They must be a part of us. We must know the will of God. In Ephesians 6, verses 5 and 6, I'll just read these quickly. You can take notes and look them up later. But Ephesians 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, notice, doing the will of God from the heart. Not just going about the motions, but doing the will of God from the heart. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you 
or exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk. How you ought to walk. We must learn how to walk, how to conduct ourselves in this evil world in which we're in. And we have no idea sometimes how much we are influenced by this evil world. We take so many things for granted. We are like the frog that slowly boiled, although I think that's a myth anyway. But we, we, we just we accept a little bit and a little bit more. And as the standards go down, I gave a sermon one time showing how when the standards go down, we always look at, compare ourselves with the world, but as the world goes down in its approach, we are always a little bit better than the world because we're just, you know, going down with it. But if we look where we are today, uh, we're worse than the world back up here uh, or, or, or further down uh, where we are today because what we accept today uh, or what, I'm sorry, let me rephrase it. What we reject today, uh, we may accept later on because things will have gotten so bad that that will seem mild at that point in time. And so we cannot compare ourselves with the world. We have to compare ourselves with the Word of God. How you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means being set apart. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians 5, beginning verse 16. It says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then he says, don't quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things and hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That's what God's will is. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, verse 21, we often quote this, but I'm just going to quote a part of it. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But what does it say? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. We've got to do the will of God. You know, we're living in momentous times, sobering times. Uh, we, we turn on our television one day and we find out that somebody has blown himself up and a lot of other people with him. I guess over 300 people were injured to one degree or another and in Brussels. We don't know when that's going to be London or maybe Birmingham or Manchester or some other city over here or Paris again. Probably it'll happen again in Paris. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but sooner or later it'll come to London. Well, it actually has come to London, didn't it? The transportation system some years ago. We have no idea what is going to happen except that it's going to get bad. We are living in momentous times. We are living in historic times that we're going to look back on and, and be amazed by. The pieces of prophecy are coming together right before our very eyes. And yet at the, the very time these things happen, God says that that final era of the church, the majority of God's people are going to be compromising. One foot in the world, one foot in the church they're going to be lukewarm. They may not even be zealous about preaching the gospel to the world. I think part of our problem is that in the Western world, 
life is still good, isn't it? Still good. I, I learned something living in a tent up in Oregon one time, a whole summer. Just come in on the weekends, not every weekend. No showers, no baths. Using a chainsaw, being covered with oil and and uh, chips from wood and crawl into bed that way and get up the next day and you work again. And I learned one thing. You can get used to just about anything. And as the world gets worse, it becomes normal. And we accept it for what it is. And don't realize just how bad things are getting. In our Western world, life is good. Perhaps it's too good. Perhaps it's just too good. That's, that's a trial in itself. We don't think of prosperity as a trial, but when it comes to God's way, it can be a trial. And Laodicea is a warning to all of us. So let's examine ourselves in light of Philadelphia and also in the light of Laodicea.